human lives are not as simple as that. We're all kind of trying to make decisions under many, many constraints. And moving is a huge decision that none of us make lightly. Leaving your community, leaving the place uh, that you've known and lived in. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, postdoctoral associate in Migrations, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. Today, climate. Climate change is now part of the regular news cycle, but it still often appears in coverage not of everyday life, but of major disasters a hurricane that displaces entire cities, flooding that destroys communities, or the combination of extreme weather and failures of infrastructure and governance, like what we've seen recently in the state of Texas with power outages amid freezing temperatures. So too with climate migration. More coverage is important, but these representations can feed narratives of mass migration that stoke fear, especially when such stories portray climate migration as a likely invasion of others who move great distances to escape drought or flooding. There's good reason to ask, of course, what happens when people have to relocate following a hurricane or drought. But limiting conversations of climate migration to the examples of disaster leaves critical and long-standing instances of environmentally induced migration out of the picture. People who move temporarily then return, for example, people who move repeatedly or who move very short distances. It also suggests that climate change concerns primarily these major disasters, leaving out the many ways in which environmental change over time affects people's ways of life and well-being. How we label and talk about the relationship between environmental change and human mobilities is critical, and these discourses are being shaped right now as we continue to study these relationships. In this episode, to reflect on approaches to studying climate-related migration and how we talk about it, we turn first to sociologist and migration scholar Felice Garip, who shares from an ongoing study that's focusing not on sudden-onset events, but on gradual change. Then Felice and I are joined by Ingrid Boas, who studies what she terms climate mobilities in terms of both disasters and gradual change. Together, we reflect on why how we talk about climate mobilities matters, and what narratives are emerging as especially important now. First, we hear from Dr. Phyllis Garip. I'm Phyllis Garip. I'm a professor of sociology and public and international affairs at Princeton University. I'm a scholar of migration, and recently I've started thinking about how environmental factors affect migration flows and migration decisions. And uh, Cornell's Migration's Grand Challenge effort actually gave a bunch of us a reason to come together and to ask this question from a multidisciplinary lens. So we established a team of scholars that include agricultural economists, theoretical economists, and I'm a sociologist. We also have members in our team from the Department of Natural Resources. So this project allowed us to really kind of think big and ask what is missing in the debate around climate change and migration. And what we realized was um, a lot of people were studying the effect of sudden onset events, 
like what happens if there's a sudden disaster and people are displaced and they need to migrate. But we wanted to think about migration more as a gradual process and what happens if, you know, weather changes are being felt slowly over time and and many more people are experiencing this change than sudden onset events like a hurricane. And you know, we wanted to look at an established setting uh, with a large migration flow and with a lot of data for us to go through. And the Mexican setting actually gave us all of these things because Mexico-US migration flow has been going on for over uh, a century the most prolonged movement of people in American history. And we've collected a lot of information on this movement already. The only missing thing is we've, until now, we haven't considered environment as a potential factor in people's migration decisions. And I would imagine that one of the things that resonates a lot or that comes up in this kind of work is that what you were looking at before in terms of economic factors or socioeconomic factors are still present, but really now become visible as entangled with um, what's going on environmentally and ecologically. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of economic changes that were happening in the, in Mexico in the 1970s, 1980s, I mean, some of it had environmental precursor to it. As droughts are becoming more commonplace, for example, it's, it's becoming harder for people to continue their you know, agricultural farming activities. But at the same time, there are also other factors like, you know, changing trade policies with the United States that are perhaps disconnected from weather, but still exacerbating the pressures created by, um, you know, long-run climate change. So I think the hard thing is how do we disentangle these different factors, if we really wanted to understand the true impact of climate change and wanted to think about future projections, how will people adapt? How will people respond to these changes? We really need to think about this in, in complex ways. We wanted to start it from a very basic point. Does weather really have an impact? If we look at 50 years of data, and uh, our data actually included information from about nearly 160,000 individuals observed over many, many, many years. So we wanted to first ask this question, what happens if we account for all the things that we've been accounting for until now, consider you know, whether someone lives in a poor community or rich community, rural community, uh, all of these things, if we consider economic changes in Mexico, in the United States, can we still detect an impact of slight weather changes, like it doesn't rain as much this year as it did last year. Does this really create an impact or is it really negligible? And the surprising thing was how robust the weather impact was and how the weather actually had a long-term effect. So lack of rain, let's say two, three years ago, can still have an impact on whether a family decides to send a migrant this year. And the reason for that is, you know, people incur debts. So if you cannot grow corn one year, it doesn't just mean that you haven't made money. It means that you haven't been able to pay back your debt because you had to get fertilizers, you had to hire workers. So then that means next year you have to recover from that. And this way, if that year the weather is not favorable, then the debt accumulates. And so the pressure is mounting. So it's not just that you have one bad year and then the next year everything is going to be okay. 
But as these things become more common, as you have more people experiencing consecutive years of you know, bad, you know, unfavorable weather, then there's a mounting pressure on people. So to see that was actually really interesting to me because you can keep everything else equal, right? So, you know, nothing else is changing in the community, but it's just like lack of rain in one year. And then you see kind of in a few years, the repercussions of that uh, with people migrating. Can you say a little bit more about the different kinds of data that you're putting together in the project? So you mentioned individual data, I assume about people who have crossed the border. And then you have all of this, I guess, 50 years of data about the, the weather in pretty local terms. Yes. So um, the individual level surveys are part of um, the so-called Mexican Migration Project. So as Mexican migration was becoming more and more common in the United States, in the 1980s, a team of scholars from Mexico and the United States basically started collecting um, individual surveys in communities that were sending um, migrants uh, to the north. And it started out as a small effort. In its first year, they went to three communities and they canvassed the entire community. And then they kept repeating this effort until today. And right now we have information from 170 communities spread across 20 plus states in Mexico and information about the whole life histories of you know, 160,000 individuals. And some of these individuals, about 20,000, I believe, have made at least one trip to the United States. But, you know, we didn't have specific weather information in that data set. So we actually went to the NASA Earth Observing System data archives, and we collected daily information on um you know, gridded uh, on one kilometer square grids on Earth's surface. And this has been recorded since 1980. And we know daily how much it rained, what the temperature was, what the maximum temperature, what the minimum temperature, all of that. But it's a massive data set. So we had to think really hard about how to combine that data with these annual information on individuals in these small communities. And we decided to use some of the newer methods from computer science that allow us to uh, automate the discovery of which weather variables are most important. Can you give an example of one of the aspects of um, weather change that you discovered through this new method that you might not have noticed um, by looking through the data with, with other methods, for example? Right. So, um, so one of the things that we... Uh, discovered was the more contextual a weather measure is, the better it captures um, people's various decisions related to their economic activities or migration behaviors. For example, we see a lot of people using precipitation patterns, but we discovered that you know not every community is affected by the rainfall in the same way, because some communities are growing crops that are sensitive to rain. Some communities are growing crops where rain does not matter as much. So uh, our, our analysis basically revealed that the more you can match the weather measure to the economic activity of that community. For example, if you're measuring um, you know, temperature, if you use the temperature thresholds that are relevant for the crop that community is growing, then you really understand, you really capture the mechanism 
through which weather impacts the decisions. Otherwise, if you use the same measure for every community, then you know it, it doesn't work as well. Do migrants themselves talk about their movements in terms of environmental changes or weather changes, or is that something that you're really bringing to that that data set through this work that you're doing? So this is a really interesting question. So uh, part of our work, a large part of our work involved using quantitative survey data overlaid with fine-grained weather information. So that took 90% of our efforts. But the remaining 10%, we actually did field work in Mexico. And we went to areas of Mexico with a team uh, of students. We went to areas of Mexico where, you know, there's specific vulnerabilities to weather changes. So we went to the southernmost tip of Mexico where coffee production is the main activity and coffee plant is very sensitive um, to weather changes. And honestly, we weren't expecting to hear the story from the farmers. We weren't expecting them to tell us, oh yes, there's climate change and we are being impacted. We were expecting, I was personally expecting to hear a more general story about, you know, there's, you know, uh, it's hard to grow uh, uh, coffee and there's a lot of fluctuation and the price is changing. But as soon as we started talking to, um, to growers there, everybody without an exception mentioned climate change. They said, you know, there's a lot more variation now. It's a lot more unpredictable. And this unpredictability is the biggest obstacle. It's not bad weather. It's your inability to anticipate when it's going to come. Because if it's, if it's just about having bad weather, then you can prepare for that. But it's just the growing um, volatility around weather. So you don't know when the summer is going to come. You don't know when it's going to rain and you can't prepare for it. So this was the hardest thing. And everybody, without an exception, mentioned that. But it is a fact of life for people whose livelihood depends on, um, on weather and predictability of weather. So seeing that was really, really interesting. So people realize this. And people even made connections between these changes and migration. So in the same sentence, a farmer would say, yes, you know, it, we expected to rain in this month, it didn't, so we couldn't grow. And then a lot of young people migrated because we couldn't pay them wages immediately. So these linkages are very, very clear to people who are living that reality. Your comment also makes me think that the threshold for migrating, so the moment when someone decides now's the time I need to leave, is of course different for people who occupy different roles in the community. At what point does someone say, I have to go? So for someone, it might be because they weren't able to earn wages at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, so the coffee growers saw this as a family heritage. So they had this emotional connection to the work that they were doing. So for the people that we talked to there, you know, they would never leave, you know, their workers left, if they couldn't hire any other people, their workers left, but they felt like they had to do this um, line of work. But they were very skeptical that their children would continue. And what we see is that it depends a lot on your own resources as a family. So if you're a relatively well off 
family uh, in a rural village, then let's say that one year there's really bad weather, there's a drought, then you can immediately, and you almost always immediately send a migrant. You can send a younger son to migrate and you can finance that trip. And we need to remember that migration is a costly endeavor. Now, especially if you're crossing without documents, nowadays it costs three to $5,000 to hire a smuggler. So a family really needs to save. And the cost of crossing also means that the migrant needs to stay in the US longer to, in, to recover those costs and to save some money. And uh, so the well-off families can make that decision pretty quickly. And in the data, what we see is that if there is kind of lack of rain and excessive heat in one year in rural communities, well-off families, families that own land, they have properties, they can immediately send a migrant. And that migrant stays for a year or two and then returns. But then poor families, what happens to them, they can't immediately respond to weather changes. The only way they can respond is, let's say two years ago, there was a drought. The next year, last year, you need to be able to recover from that drought and save some money for migration. And only then can you finance a migrant. So we see this very specific pattern for poor families that there has to be a sequence of weather events. So there has to be bad weather followed by relatively good weather to be able to save and only then you can send a migrant. And this actually raises the question of who can use migration as this adaptation strategy to deal with challenges, environmental challenges, right? And rich families can do that, but poor families, it's not available, it's not readily available to them as a strategy. So that also raises the question of inequality, right? So in this case, we can see migration as a way for people to recover from the losses that they're incurring. But then if this strategy is only available to already well-off people, then what happens to the poor? Felice and colleagues' findings from their work in Mexico underscore the need for contextually specific study about the relationship between environmental change and mobilities. At the same time, this work also resonates with research and experiences around the globe, especially as it raises questions about when migration is possible and what different factors prompt, enable, or inhibit movement. Felice's work also points to the need for a more expansive vocabulary for talking about this relationship between climate change and migration, or a need for narratives that encompass the complexities of that relationship. To take up these questions, Felice and I are now joined by Ingrid Boas. So my name is uh, Ingrid Boas. Um, I'm an uh, associate professor at the uh, Environmental Policy Group at Wageningen University and indeed at the moment um, a visiting fellow at the Migration Policy Center at the European University Institute uh, in Florence. And I've worked on this issue, so the relationship between environmental change, climate change and human mobility since um, 2007, I was working with uh, Frank Biermann. Uh, we wrote this study on, on climate refugees and um, we, we coined that term and 
made a proposal for better protection of climate refugees. We were sort of amongst the first to put it forward. So in that sense, it, it was quite an important study for to get sort of the, yeah, the discussions going and the debate going. But that also led to a lot of sort of yeah, critical responses, which also made re- me reflect on myself on, on uh, some of the di- things that we had proposed in there. Realizing how the language of climate refugees and warning for mass movements and all that, what the implications of those actually are. So I got more interested in that and then uh, on the securitization of climate migration. So more understanding what the consequences of framing are. And recently I've taken more of a somewhat more ethnographic approach. So more going actually to the regions and places uh, affected areas themselves and talk with people who are affected. And so I've been a lot in Bangladesh and in Kenya in the context of a research project on environmental migration in the digital age with a big group of sort of other scholars in the field. We coined this term climate mobilities based on sort of empirical findings of how diverse and heterogeneous actually human mobility in the context of climate change actually is as a way to yeah, open up the debate and to uh, broaden our understandings and go beyond somewhat simplistic and alarmist conceptualizations of the issue. So you're both working on uh, different, in, in different regions, but on interdisciplinary projects that offer insights into specific contexts, but also I think contribute to broader understandings of the relationship between environmental change and migration So I'm really glad to have you here for this conversation. Um, And really, I want to focus on how we talk about climate migration. How do we understand the relationship between climate change or environmental change and human mobility? And what are the narratives that we need to be really forwarding at this point? Or what's, what's the best way to communicate what we're learning about this relationship? So I wanted to frame our conversation by referring to two numbers that have been widely cited and also widely disputed, just to sort of situate the the problematics of the alarmist discourse. So in 2002, um, environmentalist Norman Myers argued that there could be as many as 200 million people overtaken by disruptions of monsoon systems and other rainfall regimes, by droughts by sea level rise. Um, So he estimates that by 2050, there could be as many as 200 million climate refugees. This became a number that got taken up by a lot of researchers pretty quickly. And then more recently, a report from the Institute for Economics and Peace estimates a possible 1.2 billion climate refugees by 2050. Thinking about people who live in countries, I'm quoting from the report, where societal resilience is unlikely to be sufficient to withstand the impact of their ecological threats between now and 2050. So these predictions have, on the one hand, garnered global awareness for the problem of climate change um, and also drawn people's attention to the fact that environmental change does affect people's movements. But it's also led to this alarmist discourse about and and we can say stoked fears about mass movements of people crossing borders. And maybe and I think your work, uh, both of your work speaks to this, maybe it also doesn't really account for the realities of that relationship between climate change and migration, or the the heterogeneous ways that environmental change can affect people's lives. And so I'll start by asking you to share how you define or measure climate change in your work, and have you adapted the way that you think about what climate change is over time? You know, in our work, 
so a lot of this, um, these numbers are concerning extreme events, uh, which we expect to increase in severity, in frequency uh, in the next several decades. The kind of migration I study has to do more with gradual changes. So the way we measure um, these environmental changes is by looking at weather fluctuations over a really long period. Um, given individual survey standards, a period of 50 years. And because we can measure these things quite well, you would think that there's a lot of consensus in the literature on how these changes impact mobility. But, you know, uh, my reading of the literature, maybe Ingrid um, also can speak to this, is it's just full of mixed results and full of disagreement around what kind of weather changes create, what kind of impact in what kind of communities, how social and economic, uh, you know, institutions, uh, you know, mediate this effect. Yeah, so, so on the last point, I think that's actually interesting. Like in, in Bangladesh, I focused on both, how people respond to fast onset events. So like big disasters coming suddenly, but also on these gradual changes. And there I found actually that these gradual changes have more impact on people actually m moving away. That it seemed that when there was sort of a cyclone, that people, whenever possible, try to uh, go back home. Also because they were quite used to uh, storms coming and then they go back and then they uh, fix the houses, sometimes also with help of NGOs or the government. But then uh, gradual changes, which in case of Bangladesh is a little bit complex to, to know to what extent that's related to climate change at the moment, um, maybe to a degree, but uh, there are erosion processes going on in, in Bangladesh which are inherent to the delta um, dynamics and have always been there. But these erosion processes sort of they weaken embankments um, and, and areas so when then a cyclone hits then that could yeah, then sort of the, the gradual dynamics and the fast onset dynamics come together. And then the situation could suddenly be, the, be much worse because then a certain area of the land is really gone. So it's, it's, it seemed to me that um, often more related to sort of these gradual processes that really made areas really vulnerable, um, more in a structural sense that people were moving away, but also um, when, when there was a sudden disaster. And areas that were less sort of vulnerable to these gradual events were also more resilient to disasters. Uh, and then when moving away, I didn't see people moving to um, yeah, very long distances or so. Rather, uh, people moved a bit more inland. For instance, I met many people who had moved their house already five times, some meters further inland, <laughs> often finding another sort of free space where um, um, a government land, for instance, where it was free to move your house or if they had some more money, they could buy a plot or, or they would uh, go to areas where they already had connections, for instance, via work. So for instance, in Dhaka or other places. So in the areas where I was in Bangladesh, I didn't meet people going to another country. I guess if I would have done research in the area very close to India, then I would have probably seen that because of the existing family bonds and connections that are already there. But I think that's the point I think we often see in the research that it's not like there's a sudden new phenomena of climate migration, but it's very much intersecting with increasing sort of social networks and connections that are already there. 
Um, and I think that's something that's often missing in these, these estimates, which sort of suggests that there will be this new type of mass migration and sort of not able to, to see how it's sort of integrating with uh, existing dynamics and how, how that is actually maybe shaping responses of people. And I fully agree that, uh, that there's a big debate still <laughs> in the scientific community. There seems to be even a bit of a divide between those wanting to f- make estimates and models of, of future climate migration and those arguing against that and trying to contextualize and, uh, everything. And, and there have been some attempts. I think now there's a, a study done uh, within the in UNEP. I think there's an attempt to bring these people together in, in, in doing that. So attempts are, are being made in that direction, but still there are lots yeah, needs to be done. It really highlights the need for these more collaborative interdisciplinary investigations too. I fully agree with that, but, but it's more difficult than it seems. Often when you come from a very different discipline, it's very often too difficult to make each other aware of, of uh, someone's other assumptions that some have. That's a really interesting point because one of the things that we talk a lot about is like how difficult it is to measure migration itself, to even count the migrants in a country and to know how many people are moving. And the other thing that we always talk about is how historically contingent migration flows is. For example, if you were to ask anyone like, you know, where would Mexican migrants come from to the United States, maybe the easiest answer would be maybe the border region because it's so close and you can just go there. But if you look historically, actually a lot of Mexican migrants come from a lot farther down from Central West because that's where the railroads were established to connect US to Mexico. That's where recruiters went to hire migrants in the 1800s. And that's how these kind of social and cultural linkages were being established. So, and for a long time, you know, the border region was not a massive migrant center. People were traveling much longer distances to migrate to the United States. So if you think about this dynamic that you can't even predict where migration is gonna happen in a country because there are all these random historical events that start a migration flow and then it continues from there. If you add on top of that, our uncertainties about how climate change events will unfold, it becomes really hard to make credible predictions about how many people will migrate. So in a way, it's, it's, I don't envy that task of coming up with estimates because it's you're bound to be wrong. Whatever number you throw out there, you're bound to be wrong. But I, you know, I, I'm happy to hear about this effort that Ingrid mentioned of bringing people at least in the same room uh, so that they can understand their language or where they're coming from, at least. Yeah, but also on, on these numbers, I sometimes also wonder in whose interest is that? Why do we per se want to know that? Uh, is that for the countries receiving the migrants? Or also because, like for instance, this um, World Bank study who has looked into the number of uh, internally displaced people in the context of climate change... They didn't include, I think, people who were displaced within 14 kilometers or something. Whilst actually, at least in the studies I've done, those seem to be amongst the most vulnerable groups as they don't have a lot of means to move further away. So they have sort of no other choice than to stay somewhat closer to the area that's being affected. But they are not included in the numbers because we always want to talk about migration or, or, or longer flows. And sometimes I wonder um, 
why are we doing that and what are we looking for exactly? And maybe it's indeed just in, in the interest of getting funds or yeah, the all noble interests. But sometimes, so, not always, it's very clear to me how it helps those um, who are most affected. This brings to mind this uh, recent comment piece that you wrote with uh, many co-authors, Ingrid, um, that came out in Nature about climate migration myths. And in that piece, you talk also about the relationship between climate change and migration and policy. And I wonder, maybe I can ask both of you to comment a little bit on what that relationship is or what it should be. So uh, Ingrid, in that piece, you talk about how narratives of mass climate displacement affect the ways that people think about what policies are necessary and therefore the ways then that research gets funded. And so these narratives have a lot of influence, not just on public understanding, but then on the production of knowledge too. Yeah, yeah. So we made a point that a lot of the policies have somewhat of a security-based focus, sort of a need sort of to prevent migration from happening, sort of in order to prevent world instability or things like that. So for instance, in that context, the European Union and its funding was focused, for instance, to make sure that... uh, that you already um, prevent it in the source so uh, so that people don't move to Europe in the, in the first place. So therefore, a lot of the funding, uh, yeah, our proposal should be focused on that. So how can we, for instance, add resilience to local communities so that they won't have to um, move in the first place? But th- and at some point, indeed, our, our research then also becomes somewhat politically motivated and also driven by some assumptions as if migration is per se bad or per se the exception to the rule and ignoring ways how also mobility is part of of social life. Yeah, I I completely agree with, um, you know, Ingrid's assessment on the political undertones that guide the questions or the way we're asking those questions. Actually coming into this field of you know climate induced migration i was quite surprised by the language of you know resilience adaptation vulnerabilities that seem to come mostly from policy based uh, communities which is not necessarily a bad thing but i think this field is very unique as a migration scholar i can see that it's 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 using a very different language than the language that we're using to explain you know economically induced migration or even kind of forced migration uh you know related to political conflicts and so on i just want to understand human mobility um you know f- from a different context of you know my goal is not necessarily to prevent it, but to understand it, to understand how different factors entangle as people are making these really hard decisions to move. And it's not, um, and the other kind of uh, uh, side of the coin is that sometimes, so we either give migrants no power, they're kind of victims that are being pushed by these large events, or we give them all the kind of calculative tools and say they're opportunists. And, you know, human lives are not as simple as that. We're all kind of trying to make decisions under many, many constraints. And moving is a huge decision that none of us make lightly. Leaving your community, leaving the place uh, that you've known and lived in. And I understand the concern about, you know, giving people options to stay in their home communities, but migration is also 
a way that humans have moved, sought opportunities. So I think in a way, it's really good to have these discussions around like, where did this, where does this language come from? Why are we trying to come up with estimates? Why are we worrying about adaptation or adaptive capacity? Or why are we defining this debate in these terms? And yes, we want to kind of contribute to policy, but we also want to understand this process from the point of people who are living it. What would you say now to people who are advocating for recognition of the climate refugee category? And also, what examples have you seen um, or what suggestions do you have for interventions that really do um, have an effect on how we talk about climate migration? What might work to shift the narrative? Well, the thing is, I, fi- I find it a bit difficult with the climate refugee concept. Also, because, yeah, because I coined it before also myself and also knowing the reasons of those who are still uh, doing it. I think often there are fair reasons behind it, right? That it's, it seems to people want to really highlight that people are facing a clear injustice and that they need, uh, they are deserving of protection. So there's often very sort of noble reasoning behind it. Yet sort of the often unintended consequence of it is that people being affected by climate change get yeah, a sort of connotation of indeed being a victim um, and oh, uh, they're coming our way and we should... Um, Embrace, embrace ourselves uh, for new climate refugees. Unfortunately, because of the discourse also that is present in many societies about immigrants and, uh, and refugees as well. But the, the strong part of the climate refugee concept is this justice connotation. So I think we need to find ways um, by using other, other concepts that are more accurate to to what we see in practice like for instance mobility how, how can we still use that in a in a way that still sort of upholds this yeah connotation of justice in a sense because of course it is related also to climate change and but i find that um always a little bit of a struggle in that um, respect and try, trying to work on that myself now in a in a book I'm writing but it's a bit of a difficult <laughs> difficult balance and in, in in that sense in the interventions that, that that do help I find that a difficult one I, I've done a lot of talks myself sometimes interventions in newspapers or something but I don't often see a very big effect like sort of the common tendency to talk about it in a sort of alarmist way seems to sort of come back over and over again. But maybe um, like what I find very powerful examples are people from the small island states in the Pacific who are uh, the Pacific climate warriors, I think they're call themselves, who are very actively appearing on social media or in other ways um, to protest against a framing of them being climate refugees and them wanting to sort of fight back uh, and, and, uh, and take ownership of what's happening to them and also uh, to still place emphasis on the responsibility of, for instance, Australia and other polluting countries to act. So still putting forward this justice claim while still while without them becoming the passive victims but actually being the climate warriors and i kind of like that they've been quite powerful i think in 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 bringing that across but yeah more of that could happen uh, but i maybe uh, uh, yeah i don't have the uh, the perfect solution yet <laughs>
you know, I, I, I agree with, you know, Ingrid in that having a label in a way helps mobilize us around and kind of helps us recognize that this is an issue. But it also very quickly politicizes it. It also brings all these connotations, both for the people engaging in it and also people who may not perhaps fit the category, but are still being impacted by environmental change. And I find the effort to understand the different ways that people are being impacted and the different responses that they're giving as kind of more, um, more important at this point. Um, so how do we communicate to this to the public? And it's, it's, I think we mistakenly think of it as a national issue, whereas it's an issue that no one nation can solve on its own. So it's, it's by definition a global issue, you know, involving at least two countries. The more we think about these issues, both climate change and mobility or migration flows as global issues, the more we realize that um, the reasons underlying them are affecting all of us, not just migrants. Um, so uh, one of the big issues with migration is how, um, if we look at refugee flows, for example, how the burden, quote unquote, of refugee flows is actually borne not by the Western world, but by developing countries. When we look at climate change, we see a similar disproportionate distribution, whereas, you know, the advanced economies are contributing more to what we see as causes of climate change, the burden of climate change is being experienced more by developing poorer regions of the world. So this imbalance is reflected in within each country as well, within advanced nations, we also see growing inequalities. And if we see the problems that migrants are facing as reflection of our own problems, I feel like we recognize something really crucial. It's not just, you know, and we see, we saw this with the COVID pandemic in a way, like how connected our all, like our well being is in this world. It's really small, the world, when it comes to uh, experiencing um, issues all together. Thanks for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and with the hashtag Cornell Migrations. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migrations Postdoctoral Associate with the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies, and produced by Megan Demend. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the nation's sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is basically really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.